everyone. I am Dr. Julie Costin, and we are here with the Inclusion Podcast, episode number 24. Today's topic is incredible. It is about education as equity, and we are here with Becky Anderson. And I am so excited for the audience to meet Becky, so let me first start by saying hi and welcome, Becky. Hello, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to this conversation with you. Me too. So Becky and I um, have not known each other very long, but probably are already best friends because we've had, we have many things in common. One thing I want to tell you is a bit about her background. She's been an educator for 19 years. She taught, right now teaches 6th through 8th grade middle school ELA, which means English language arts for people who don't know. Prior to that, she taught multi-age four and five, and prior to that, she taught multi-age three, four, and five, and now also is an adjunct at Carroll College and works with soon-to-be educators. So that's a bit about your background. Do you mind sharing anything else about you? Sure. Uh, I also teach in the graduate program at Carroll University. That's actually where I started, and so I've been doing that for about 10 years, and I have the privilege of working with uh, in-service teachers who are looking to expand their knowledge and build their expertise in literacy. So they're working on their reading teacher licenses. And so that's a year long cohort, which is beautiful because we get to spend a year together every month in cohorts that uh, get to think about and talk about what is best for students with literacy as the, um, as the mover, the shaker and the guide for making change. And additionally, I um, did teach second grade for a few years, and that was something that I was terrified about. (laughs) However, it was one of the best experiences I ever had because it helped me understand some of our younger learners and um, gave me a a rich background in kind of growing with my with older learners, knowing what where they come from and where they're going. And that was a beautiful experience as well. How great. I just know, I'm telling the audience this, Becky, Not I know that you get embarrassed when I say things like this, but I just know from many people who know you and have visited your classrooms that you are one of the most dynamic teachers who really understands what it means to create a community. And so that's the reason that I wanted you here today is to talk about your experience from that of a general education teacher. And I'm just going to open it up, and I think we'll just kind of have a conversation and see how it goes. But I just want to ask you, you know, what does it mean to you to be an inclusive educator? Well, first of all, thank you for (laughs) that very nice compliment. And it is awkward to hear those things about ourselves. But at the same time, I think it's why I love education so much and why I can't wait to go back to the classroom the next day. And even if I've had the worst day or it just feels like everything went horribly or whatever it was, by the time I'm home for about an hour or so, I'm ready, I'm recharging, ready to go back again the next day. And it's because of those relationships and how much they they matter and mean and the opportunity that we have as educators to help kids feel something that either they have felt before or have never felt before and help them guide them to be able to create that in their own lives and their own relationships at that time and moving forward. Hmm. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> That's okay. So my question was, what does it mean to you to be an inclusive educator? And you get to shape this conversation and talk about anything that you feel would be important. So what what comes to mind when I say that? So when I think of an inclusive educator, I think that every single person not only matters, I think that's the base, that's like the lowest common denominator is that you feel like you matter to me. Mm. 
that it's that you feel like you matter to everyone in the room Mm -hmm. and that everyone in the room feels like they matter to everybody else Mm -hmm. because we all as human beings have strengths that other human beings don't have and that can learn and grow from and so there's no way that you can get to that place in the classroom without doing the real raw work of who we are and why we matter and recognizing each other and i had a beautiful student teaching experience way back about Mm -hmm. 20 years now uh, with jude watry in pewaukee and the thing that just always resonated with me was how much each kid knew about the other kid Hmm. and how no matter if it was a kid who couldn't stop moving or if it was a kid that was nonverbal, or if it was a kid who had who who had to come in for extra math help, it didn't matter what it was. Everybody knew how the value of each other, and that made for a, a really great base for me to know that's what I wanted my classroom to feel like. In addition, um, I think it's how I led my life. That even and my mom tells me stories about even in preschool that kids would come in crying, and I'm four years old, and instead of playing, I'm sitting with them with my arm around them what's going on and I think that's just that human emotion that a lot of us are in tune with and I think that helps me in my quest for inclusive classrooms and also um, I have an older brother named Shane Um, he is five years older than me and he uh, had many diagnoses uh, throughout his life he was in school just when special ed became a thing Mm -hmm. And he was down the hall to the left, to the left, to the left in the corner kind of deal. And he still didn't know what to do with him. And so I saw my mom fight so hard and my dad fight so hard his whole life. And he's 50 now and to this day fight so hard for him to have the best experiences that he can. And that I think just from birth, since he was older than me, I had that vision and then I got to see what it's like on the family side to want that for a child and also know that every single person, every human is different, which sounds like a no brainer, but um, I saw how different education was for my brother Hmm. and for me and how one size would never fit all. So I went into it with that um, mindset as well. That's beautiful. And I love to know that you're thinking through multiple lenses, right? So you're thinking through lens of sibling, you're thinking through lens of second grade teacher through lens of eighth grade teacher kind of through multiple lenses and at the bottom of it you say community is really important uh, but not just kind of community in that you know we'll do some community builders or anything like that but more that every human is actually valued in your space can i ask you to move to be uh, very practical in your thinking so what does that look like if I'm an educator listening to this podcast and so what what do I do to create that well it is an art so that (laughs) part of the the practicality piece falls away a bit in that however there are practical pieces that can happen Mm. so one is the team builders that's Mm -hmm. that is a a great intro to having more of an inclusive more of a community feeling classroom Mm -hmm. And if we look at those as like foot in the door to maybe the real work, the real work comes after the community builder. Hmm. It comes with the stopping and intentional processing and reflection about the experiences that we had together and individually. 
So it's growing the self-awareness of the students themselves, of the group, smaller groups, and then as a whole, and then what does that mean for our classroom? So if you have a team builder as a foot in the door, the processing, and so that there, the beauty of processing is while it's super organic, we can go with simple questions. Like every time we do a team builder, we can finish by circling up and starting with one sentence um, starter. What did you notice? Mm -hmm. Start there. And then we can take what we hear to develop our next question. So it could be, I heard that a lot of people felt X, Y, or Z. Hmm. So what might that mean for a classroom environment? Hmm. Who might be served by that? Who might need something different? Hmm. How might that look in our space? And so while it's practical by going into it with the team builder, it's then the stopping and the questioning. And 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 that's not going to feel great at first for kids. They're not necessarily going to feel comfortable with sharing what they felt, what they need, what they noticed even, because it's not a right or wrong answer. And from the very beginning, it doesn't matter if they've been in second or third grade, they already know that school has a lot of right or wrong answers. And so there's a bunch of unlearning to do so that our students can know that there are so many so many answers to any given question Hmm. and that we're creating an environment like that which also means like that is a metaphor for what we believe about the kids in our space as well Hmm. that's such a beautiful answer i'm kind of just uh sitting back um i'm someone who loves to do community builders and sometimes i do them and sort of okay that's done next step right but what you just did was really create new space in my brain to realize it actually is the after where the magic takes place. And I love your series of questions as an example. What did you notice? What does that mean for us? Um, what does it mean? To... Go ahead. John Dewey is uh, a hero in my mind. Yeah. One of the things that he has said is that we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about that, not just with team builders, but in general, in all things we do in a classroom, we have a lot of power there. Mm -hmm. And then the other phrase that I live by is that reflection is the stickiest glue for the brain. And I don't know who said that, but I saw it on Twitter somewhere. Oh, Twitter, Twitter said it then. Reflection is, (laughs) reflection is the stickiest glue for the brain. I'm jotting that down because I love it. So you teach through ELA, and I wonder how does it mean, how do you take even book choice or, you know, curricular content itself as a way to create inclusive learning spaces? Okay, so this is a big deal on my end. I think that this is kind of the number one access point to seeing our students Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's one of the reasons why I am a literacy teacher is because of the human nature of it. So our bookshelves, I'm a big believer in having a um, kind of a book flood in the classroom so we feel like we're enveloped in in literature. I even had somebody say last year a visitor in our school said is this the library and I felt like it was the best compliment I had ever, (laughs) ever heard. Yeah. So having books that represent a vast array of human experiences Hmm. is critical to to the development of of learners. So for instance, if I don't see myself on that shelf, I don't matter. Hmm. 
And we know that the majority of book publishing in any given year is about white people. Mm -hmm. And right right below white people is animals. Hmm. So you would have a better chance of seeing yourself on a bookshelf if you were a rock or a sponge than if you were Latinx, hmm. or if you were African-American, or if you were Native American, indigenous person, you would have a much better chance of seeing yourself on the shelf. And we're not even talking about yet um, seeing someone positively represented with disabilities or LGBTQ. So we're just talking about race at that point. And there are so many other aspects about what should be represented on a in our libraries, in our classroom bookshelves, and in our curricular choices or in the curricular design that our um, districts have created for us that they are expecting each classroom teacher to use. So that is first and foremost. Uh, and the, a great place to go for this information would be from out of Madison, the CCBC. Yeah. They have some great infographics. They have one from 2012, which is almost like a paper pencil sketch, and then 2015 and 2018, comparing the numbers and the visuals of almost a caricature of the different representations in the literature that's published in those years. And it is a great um, place for students and teachers and admin to analyze and to then reflect on their own bookshelves and what kids are seeing. So seeing yourself on the shelf is kind of step one. And then what does it mean? So I've seen many teachers who say things like, you know, I've got make sure to have posters up. I make sure to da da da. I want kids to see themselves. And I would say that beyond that, reading your own identities, sort of creating, writing, and reading your own identities becomes sort of a next step. And how do you, as an educator, deal with the sometimes very clear directives of a district when it comes to curriculum and how to select it? So, yes, a lot of, I have, again, as I said, I work, work with in-service teachers working on the reading teacher licenses. So I have, over the last 10 years, been able to hear stories from just a multitude of districts around the state of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And most places do have expectations of which books to use in their curricular choices each day. Mm-hmm. So what... I notice not only from their stories, but also my own personal story is that we need to feel empowered to make changes in our classrooms. And that's not always how teachers feel. That's how we want teachers to feel. I would assume that even if we asked any admin anywhere, they would say, gosh, I want my teachers to be thought leaders and gosh, I want them to be empowered and gosh, I want them to make the best choices for our our students that are right in front of them. But that doesn't happen to always transfer into real life. So there's um, a wonderful article that I came across, and it is out of NCTE, which is the National Council for Teachers of English, Mm -hmm. and it was published in 2019, and it has kind of a lengthy title, I'm going to say it anyway right here. Okay, good. Being a Radical Pragmatist, Reflections on Introducing LGBTQYA Lit to an ELA department. This is by Henry Cody Miller and can be found online easily. So I hope that people do take the chance to spend some time with it. It's a very short article, but has the um, power to empower teachers. So 
what um, my experience was, was that I really wanted to start using text to represent all students. And one of those pieces was LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And I knew that working in a middle school that not only did I feel that there were students that were questioning or um, wondering or feeling maybe different than others, the way that they were being represented either in curricular design or just in the way that society showed, was showing things on TV or in um, Hallmark cards or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I wanted our space to be a space that represented all. So that was a new thing for me to specifically choose text that represented LGBTQ characters. And <clears throat> I was a little nervous at first because I didn't know what it would, what the reaction would be. And I started just asking questions and thinking about how can I use this and who, who, who might have an issue with this. And I started to think, gosh, it's really a privilege of me to even be considering whether or not to use this because I am saying that I can choose not to have LGBTQ in my classroom when in fact it is in my classroom. It's in every classroom everywhere. So I decided that I, my discomfort of what any repercussions that I might have community or otherwise was less important than um, my students in my care. So Mm -hmm. I started to think about how can I, find the support to do this and this is when I found this article and it talked about four different steps to becoming a radical pragmatist and that's where I started. So um, I love this article and I I haven't read it but I love the title of it I'm just going to start there like everything about the title makes me excited to read it I'm going to download it and read it afterwards. But you had told me one of the bigger um, points in this article is mining the district's vision. Um, And I would like you to talk a little bit about that. So what does it mean to mine the district's vision and their policies and things like that to find what? What are we mining it for? Sure. So as an educator, one thing I really had never done was I didn't really dive into my school's mission, my district's mission or their vision or their mandates besides ones that were brought into my space. You know, it's mandated that we do X, Y, Z. Sure. I didn't look into policies. I really wasn't looking at school board policies and what they meant aside from the ones that we were told when we come back to school, these policies change, take a look at them, sign off that you have. Mm -hmm. So I started to dig and I started to find um, mandates and policies and missions and visions and um, that supported what I wanted to do. And that said to me, gosh, I'm, I'm ready. I can do this. So for instance, I started to look and notice that my district um, was their teaching and learning frameworks were um, aligned to UDL and personalized learning. And so then with UDL, we know that there is multiple means of engagement, which means representation, Mm. which means I need to see myself in a text, which means these texts need to be in my classroom, which means Becky go shopping. (laughs) So all this to say is it's okay to go shopping for your school. Um, (laughs) But what I love about this, I just never, it's pretty subversive in some regard. And then it's so powerful in another way to look at it, to say, there are policies that can support this thoughtful work. We just have to be more prepared than the people that are likely to question us when we go down those paths, right? 
more prepared with the language, with the policy, with the mandates, with everything ahead of time. So you can predict that there'll be pushback. Um, you've been in schools long enough to know that there's pushback when it comes to changing a policy about what door to line up. You know, there's there's just there's pushback when change happens. And so you're getting smart to say, I'm going to be prepared for that. Um, and I also want to comment, I heard you say that you feel very privileged. Your, priv your privileged is clear in the way that you get to decide to go forward with these challenging conversations or not. And I, what's underneath that is that students don't get to decide if they move forward in challenging ways or not. And uh, I appreciate that, that thinking. I want to ask you from that article, is there anything else that you would think would be really useful for our audience to hear about or know about? Absolutely. So I would encourage everyone to read it. Yeah. And know that even the title is Radical Pragmatist, <laughs> but it doesn't feel radical in the way that uh, Cody Miller is helping us go about it. So the first thing that he suggests is that we discover the innovations that have the potential to transform teaching and learning. Mm. And so in his article, he talks about including uh, LGBTQ literature in the school that he's in. And that's actually, ironically, the same thing that I was trying to do. And that's how I came upon this article. And so <clears throat> he, in his regard, it's not radical. In my regard, it's not radical. In many of the children's lives that we, that we spend time with, it's not radical. In some teachers' lives in Advent, it's not radical. But to other people, it is. Hmm. And so you're doing something radical sometimes by including a book um, but we're doing it, he talks about then first figuring out what that innovation is, and then mining the schools, the district's initiatives and mandates and visions and missions for institutionally approved language. So as you were saying, that I'm arming myself, I'm, in, I'm empowering myself, I'm acknowledging the things that our district is already saying to help support what I'm trying to do. And so I have the approved language. So that, in this case, is universal design for learning. And there's many other... Um, there's many other items that I found in policy and in frameworks and in uh, visions and missions that do support what I'm trying, what I was trying to accomplish. But that was just the UDL is almost a blanket for any type of text that I need in my classroom to help represent all children, even if I don't know that representation needs to be in the classroom at that time. And then by um, finding that institutionally approved language, he talks about how that can empower change agents and thought leaders by framing the educational aim in familiar language that everyone is generally familiar with and then using that to design the learning that aligns with the radical curricular innovations which again can be as simple as working to include different types of texts or using different types of texts rather than ones that were chosen by a district so I think that those four pieces across the board, um, I have created some frameworks from his work that help teachers work through it and we'll be happy to share that with anybody mm -hmm. so that they can do the work, spend some time together, do the work, mine some things and have, um, I created some, some even some um, frames so that they can include almost like fill in the blanks right. to use in conversations or in emails that they might need to send to people that can help support their radical curricular decisions. They're, they're radical curricular choices. I love it. Um, okay, so here's my conundrum. I'm at, um, you know, the time is really up and I'd love to spend more time with you, Becky, just learning about how you think about 
making decisions, but also how you go about empowering yourself to ultimately empower students, which is so thrilling. So I think I'm going to, you know, end the episode here because I promise to keep them tight and short. But I want to say this. Is there anything that jumps to your mind that you would want to say to people who are considering taking a leap and trying something new around inclusion of all students? Is there anything you'd like to say to people? Yeah, um, I would say that our students are waiting for us Hmm. and they can't wait. And so whether we're scared, whether we're not sure, whether we are, um, don't know where to go next, um, they're waiting and they might be saying it was behavior of some sort and they might not be. And we have the opportunity, whether it's a text in our classroom or the way that we interact with kids or the way that we process, the way that we create community, they're waiting and they, they deserve it. And so do we. And when it all comes down to it, we deserve to be the expert in our room to do what's best for our kids. Huh. Beautiful. Okay, Becky, thank you so much for taking this time today on a Sunday, nonetheless, on after a busy, busy weekend that you've had. And I didn't mention it, but Becky's got a cold and everything, and you sounded great. So <laughs> thanks. Well, thank you for having me. It has been a wonderful time, and I just really value all the work that you're doing and the work that the those listening to your podcast are doing and that we, we have a great um, challenge in front of us to be inclusive with all students but it's the work the work doesn't get better than this so thank you yeah it's the work of the heart all right well thank you becky have a great day and to our listeners thank you for tuning in join us for our next episode where we continue to learn how to be present for students how to open doors for students and how to make learning spaces safe and inclusive thanks everyone (laughs) 